Hey there. If you like this podcast, you are going to love my new book, Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Reclaim Your Sovereignty. In Needy, I share my unique approach to identifying, honoring, and advocating for the most tender and true parts of yourself that are yearning to be acknowledged. It is an invitation to embody self-acceptance, which leads to meaningful growth in self-responsibility, self-care, self-trust, and self-love. All of the themes that we talk about all of the time on this podcast. Woven with threads of timeless wisdom, honest assessments of our needs, and heartfelt personal stories of transformation from yours truly and others, Needy illustrates a profound vision for what is possible when you listen to the stirrings of your heart and reclaim your undisputed sovereignty in your life. Now, you can get Needy wherever books are sold, but if you are a podcast super fan, you might appreciate the audiobook, which I do narrate, which you can find on Audible. Now on to today's show. Hey there, it's your host, Mara Glatzel, and you are listening to the Needy Podcast. Here at Needy, we are devoted to sharing frank conversations and true stories about what it means to meet your needs consistently, messily, and sustainably. Needy is a listener-funded podcast. Your contributions enable us to continue bringing you the delicious conversations you adore without advertisement or interruption. To become a member of the Needy Inner Circle and to get information about today's episode, dance on over to theneedypodcast.com. Now, on to today's show. Hello, welcome back to the Needy Podcast. This is your host, Mara Glatzel, and I am thrilled to be here with today's guest, Molly Carome. Molly is the author of two books, Teacher and a Holder of Space. For 13 plus years, she has facilitated personal story workshops for more than hundreds of people across the globe. She is trained in somatic experiencing and focuses on where language and voice and the animal body meet each other. Her mission is to democratize expression and explore in good company the healing alchemy between story and nervous system. Welcome, Molly. I'm so excited that you're here with us today. How are you doing? I am doing well. I am excited to have this hour together. It's like a luxury. feels that way. Just to chat, you know, be in conversation. Yeah, I agree. It really does feel like a luxury. I was thinking about that this morning when I was looking through your website. And also, you know, I have a copy of Body Full of Stars here that's very dog-eared. And what I love about these interviews is just getting to ask people that I admire questions about how they think about things and live their lives and just make it work. Mm. So thank you for being game for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Will you start by telling us a little bit about what you do and most importantly, why you do it? Yes. So I do a lot of things, (laughs) But, but in terms of, you know, I'm a mom of two kiddos and very involved in trying to be present for them. And my work feels really like my vocation. I'm a writer. I've written two memoirs out in the world. I also teach and facilitate workshops 
for lay people. So what that means is not necessarily folks who are trying to be professional writers. I have worked a lot with professional writers, but my heart is really with those who have a story, a personal story that they're trying to get unstuck from and, or they feel bound by, and they're also wanting to find voice. Like, how can I express, like find my expression and exist in the the fluidity really of story, which in my opinion is what story is meant to be. So I run retreats and I run online workshops and in-person workshops. And I also blend in with that. And I've been doing that for about 13 years. And I, I blend in with that nervous system work. I finished a um, three-year training in somatic experiencing, which is trauma resolution, um, nervous system resilience training. So I blend in the soma and how we can work with the dance that happens between our nervous system and our stories. And that came about because I'd worked with people in story for many years and found that I could support people in getting so far in transforming a personal story, but there was the body piece that needed to come along. And I didn't have, I was sort of winging it like with my own experiences around body. And I I wanted more training around how to guide people through that. So that's where that came from. Oh, beautiful. I am just so compelled by your work. And I love how you describe bringing the body piece into it. That was something that really stuck out for me as I was looking through your site this morning was just you know, thinking about how body-based exercises and especially as that relates to writing, I really, I just really resonated with both the need for that and also my own personal practice of that. And I think it's really, I do want to hear more about that. But first I want to hear about just kind of what it looks like for you to meet your needs right now on a just regular daily basis. Mm. Oh, it's so front and center right now. I, for me, it is, it is literally turning back inward and tracking my own body as cliche as that sounds, but it is being in the actual moment, like this morning with my children trying to get them off to school. And my oldest child was grumbly about something and I could feel the compression in my chest happening. I could feel this like sense of being boxed in by some, you know, like I'm feeling like, well, something's boxing me in. And in the past, I just wouldn't even even notice that until I, five hours later, you know, I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh, what happened? Ah, everything tumbled. And now my practice is really being so, so with myself in those moments and then making a move. So my move this morning was, you know what? And I have a partner. So I said to my, my husband, I am going upstairs. I'm out. I'm tagging out. And I, and I can't always do that because he's not always here. So, but in that moment I could, and, um, and then sort of celebrating myself for doing that. So, so that right there was me meeting my need. Now, the other, the other one that feels very present, I mean, on a very practical level, sometimes it's me sitting down and eating my breakfast before I feed my kids. Mm-hmm. And letting them watch me do that. And, and not in a way like that they're starving and begging for food, but just saying, hey, I I need to nourish myself so that I can make the food I want to for you. And sitting down and doing it as opposed to like stuffing it in my mouth as I'm doing 85 things in the kitchen. So, you know, there are little pieces like that. But the big one right now is 
building my own capacity to hold to my need and allow whoever is around me, my loved one, allow them whatever mood they're going to be in or whatever response they're going to have when I set my boundary and being able to tolerate that Mm. and being able to go, okay, like, I know you're going to lose it because I just set this boundary, but I'm okay still, even if you're losing it. And that that's an edge for me. And so that feels really present, you know, and to hold to that as opposed to, you know, sliding out from underneath my knee and going, okay, fine. Like, let me make sure you feel okay. So Anyway, I could go on and on about that, but I'll stop there. Yeah. I always, in my own mind, I call that sitting on my hands. Yes. And I remember the first time when my oldest kid was maybe two months old, maybe less, I had been doing all of the like midnight stuff, the middle of the night, everything. And, you know, nursing her was really challenging. Everything was really challenging. And there was this one day where (laughs) I said... You know, she she had everything she needed. She was just like up in the night and I was really tired. And I woke my partner up and it was like, can you get up with the baby? And they did not want to. And they were annoyed because I was already awake. You know, mm-hmm. everything in me was like, you're already awake. You're already, mm-hmm. you have to just be awake. Just be the person. And I remember lying in that bed, literally lying on top of my hands, just like, just stay here. Just stay here. <laughs> just, like, just, just receive what you asked for. And they can be grumpy. You can be horrified and overwhelmed in receiving. And it's only, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes to receive whatever it is that's on the other end of asking for what you need. Yes. Yes. We say over here, you know, that kind of like you get what you get and you don't get upset. Right, right. We have amended it to much less catchy. You get what you get and you get to feel however you feel about it, but I'm not going to change my decision. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's wordy, but my kids, that's so important. It's like, you get to feel however you feel about it, but that, you know, I'm not going to change what I asked for or what I said because of that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that you mentioned the word uncomfortable. One of the pieces in nervous system work, one of the phrases that's often thrown around is uncomfortable, but tolerable is the sweet spot. So if you're in that space where it's really uncomfortable, but you can tolerate it, you don't feel like you're going to die, you know, which sometimes we feel like we are, even if we're not, then, then there's the edge of growth, right. For everyone involved. And that I I always remind myself of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm curious for you, do you have things like tools that you use or things that you go to when you're in that space of being even pretty uncomfortable, like meeting the needs that arise versus undoing the thing that you asked for, or, you know, kind of trying to take it back or what do you do when you're uncomfortable? Yeah. I, one thing that helps me, and I have to say this before I even say them, because if I was hearing this maybe five years ago, I would have been like, come on. Um, these things are so simple. They seem pointless, but these things have really helped me. So feeling my feet on the ground, like a tree, you know, I live around a lot of trees. So I, ma- I literally imagine myself as a tree with my feet rooted and my limbs blowing in the breeze and being fine. So that's one. I put my hand under my armpit and then my other arm sort of wrapped around me and just squeeze like a gentle squeeze. I ask myself the question, is this life-threatening? which really brings it right back down to ground level for me because um, oftentimes my body feels like it is life-threatening, you know? And then, and then often, and, and I can very quickly 
realize, oh, this actually isn't like here I am in the house and like the wood stove is going and it's warm and like everyone's okay. And there, and I can get myself back into an adult space, you know, cause the, the one who's worried about it being like threatening is the child me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other, I really like to play with posture. So here's an example. So this morning, this tumble with my daughter, you know, she gets upset with me and she's, and she knows my hook. So she starts saying things like, well, I guess I'm just a horrible child, you know? Mm -hmm. And I hear that. And of course she knows that that my heart, you know, melt, like just collapses when I hear that. And then I try to fix it. And she's not manipulating me, but she just knows as, as children know about their parents. And and what happens in me is that my heart starts to sort of un- unfold. And then I also feel this collapse in my chest. And then I, and then this is like the nervous system and story piece. And then the story that starts to surface for me is, oh my gosh, I have wounded my child. What mm-hmm. is wrong with me? I am a shit mother. Da, 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 da. And it just goes on and on. And that's old. That's from when I was young. And I can feel my shoulders curl in and then, you know, so there's the dance between the body and the posturing and the, and the story. And so if I can get a little space and by a little, I mean like in the hallway, I don't have to leave the house. And then I can try to very slowly reposture myself and not in a way that is like toxic positive, but in a way that is very slow and incremental. So maybe it's just a very slight opening of my shoulders or maybe it's standing a little taller or putting my hands out, something like that, that makes me feel more in my adult's mother body. Then that phrase, I'm a shit mother, it just doesn't hold in that posture. Mm-hmm. Like you can, you can try this. Like you can try it. I, I have people play with this all the time, like re- change your posture. Um, and by posture, I don't just mean like straight back. I mean, any sort of posture, any movement, and then bring your old story and plant it in there and see if it actually can hold. It it doesn't really, it's it sort of, it's dissonant. And so then I will, then I just play back and forth with the, with that story and the posture and I go back and forth and, and sort of play and see, create more fluidity in my own system around it. That helps me a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two two pieces that are woven in there that are have been so meaningful for me as well are first of all that knowing that being uncomfortable doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Yeah, because we're so conditioned to halt at the point of discomfort and kind of like go back to start and think like, oh, well, you know, if I feel this way, it must mean that I didn't. Mm-hmm. set the boundary right ask for what i need correctly or you know even i think about starting a creative pursuit it's like if we wait until it feels good mm. i mean at least me i'm gonna be wait- <laughs> waiting yes. a long ass time uh because it doesn't yes. <laughs> people are like i have a book that's coming out in uh february people are like oh it must feel good i'm like no it actually feels really awful <laughs> And I'm doing it anyway. Uh, so that piece of, you know, being uncomfortable doesn't really mean anything other than it brings up something in us. And that second piece of like, you can't, you know, we can't be literal about everything that we think. We can't, yes. you know, trust everything that we think. And I love that idea of planting that old story and seeing if it holds up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the story piece for me is... I think it's my my 
experience and being with people and witnessing myself and witnessing friends is that story has so much potential for us. And so few of us are engaging with it in part because we don't have a practice, because we don't have community, because we don't circle in the way that we once used to. And I do believe that story wants to help us and wants to be in service to us as opposed to imprisoning us, you know, which, Mm -hmm. you know, which feels like a lot, a lot of people experience that prisoning feeling. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, having a working understanding of yourself, just very simply the story that you tell yourself about who and how you are. Yeah. And I don't know how that shifts. I feel like this has shifted in my life so many times over the course of my life, of course, but something that I'm noticing shifting right now is the story around I'm the oldest sister, in my family, mm. and was the first grandkid, you know, kind of broke everyone in to having kids in a certain way, which I am really ex- re-experiencing through my oldest child, just seeing mm. kind of what that process is like. But also noticing for myself the stories that I tell myself about the places, the like the role that I play in my family of origin and what no longer fits or is needed. Mm. And so like it turns out so much. But I'm curious for you, when you notice that point of, I don't know, kind of like that teetering edge of this doesn't fit me anymore but I am still pretty attached to it. What do we do in that space where we're kind of at the precipice of a new understanding of ourselves, but also, you know, really still connected to that old story? I believe that is an edge where many people that that's that right there is the edge that some people cross over. I don't know if edge is the right word in this, the metaphor I'm using, but um, you know, I know you cross over. Yes. That, that's the line that some people cross over and then some people don't because it's too scary. So for me, I call that a reckoning process. So if, if I know, and I'm getting data from my environment that like, Oh, this is changing. This is shifting. And yet here I am holding on to what's familiar, this old story. I know that, I need to reckon with that and I need to reckon with what I'm getting from that story. Because if I don't want to let go of it, I am receiving something from it. And usually it looks like I'm receiving attention, status, um, space. I get distance, maybe because I can't create my own distance. I'm getting something from that familiar story. And that is, that's hard. That's hard to face and that's hard to admit to. In my story that I wrote, Body Full of Stars, you know, I was mad for a long time, in particular at my at my husband, but just at all men in general. And even as I healed and started to heal, I could feel myself resisting the healing because I was getting I was getting revenge by not healing. And I was getting attention. Or I was trying to get attention in particular from my husband. And I was certainly getting attention from all of my friends and, you know, larger public. I was, I felt empowered, even though there was a level of it that was false power. And so to let go of that and to go like right now, I'm, I feel like I'm in a new space with my own physical healing journey. And I'm really sitting there with a question. Well, if there's nothing wrong with my body, who am I? Mm. Like, what do I even have to say about it? <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, that's my reckoning. Can I tolerate that? Can I, can I actually 
be in a body that's just really vital and great. And there's nothing really to say about it. Who am I then? Because for so long, I have been, I've had a lot to say about what it means to, to be in a body that is um, struggling health-wise. So, so for me, it's that reckoning and, and actually asking your people, asking those questions of your people. You know, I'm a big believer in the importance of community with all of this work and play and to say to your closest people, hey, you've witnessed me be in this story for X number of years. This is where I am now. I'm on the edge of really moving into something new. And this is where I'm stuck. Can you help see me? Like, what do you think about these things? What do you feel? What do you see? And if you have a, if you have someone who's willing to really go there with you, they might say, you know, this is, I think that you're getting, you're getting X and Y from this. And what would it be like if you didn't get that? Could you get it somewhere else or not get it at all? Yeah, it strikes me, you know, here we are talking about needs that many of us carry that story about our needs. You know, I am a person who doesn't get my needs met for a myriad of reasons that I have a, you know, often an attachment to in certain ways. And, you know, for me, there was this kind of like weapon. I, I we talk a lot of, hear a lot about weaponized incompetence, but I like to think about weaponized competence because that really rings true for me. And it was just like this hyper responsibility, this, you know, I'm great in an emergency. You can depend on me. I mean, just, I used to say, put it on my tombstone, which was like, <laughs> like <laughs> whatever it is that I've said that I'm going to do, I'm committing to it a thousand percent. And just that, like, I will be the person who is always there. And I got so much from that for such a long time. And it felt like, earning my relationships. Mm. And when I was the person who was good at all of the things, and I was making myself really, really, really useful, you know, who in their right mind would reject me or abandon me, which of course, I was deeply afraid of underneath all of that doing. And it is so scary to face some of them. I mean, the just the, the roots run so deep. But, you know, being obsessed with needs work, I did start to realize, well, you know, I, the reason I'm not getting my needs met is because I'm completely outsourcing myself to everybody around me. Well, and isn't that so often in the archetype of the firstborn daughter, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's so interesting how like the kind of interweaving, like cultural conditioning, of what it means to be good and a woman and I'm trained as a social worker. So being in the helping profession and, and also what I'm genuinely good at. Yes. Kind of like gets all folded in together. Yes. And yeah, being able to show up for everyone as they need all that. I mean, to me, this kind of, and you call it your work as needs work. I love that. I love that phrase. It feels like dismantling and undoing generations of humans, but for me in particular, like my matrilineal lineage, I mean, I watch it. My mom's still alive and I watch it and I watch it and I, I watch it also then 
obviously some of that has changed with me, but you know, it can't all change in one generation, you know? So even my youngest, I have two daughters. My youngest was playing and she's was pretending that she was a baby doctor and she was this and she was that. And she was walking around the house going, I have a lot of things to do. <laughs> I am. And I, I don't use the word busy, but I do use the word full. And so she was, I have a very full life. I have eight babies to take care of. And I have to, and I have my own babies and I have to make dinner. I mean, she was walking around saying these things and I'm going, there it is. Like, there it is. She is, you know, she's heard that from me. She's heard that from her grandmother. And so there it is, but it's it's a lighter dose of it, but it's still there. Yeah. I think that, you know, that lighter dose of it is really what we can aim for. Yeah. And, you know, so often, I don't know, we have these very perfectionistic uh, visions of what healing looks like. And it's like, oh, the complete absence of this story that has had a stronghold over me for so long. And how so often it's just a new way of being with that thing. Yes. So I'm curious for you, kind of like how you found your way here, because you know, through reading your memoir, of course, I know that having your first child was a big kind of opening for you. But I'm wondering, you know, you were writing before that. And I love in your about page, you talk kind of about choosing writing and how that subterranean part of us does know. But I'm I'm just, I'm curious, like, if like the arc of how you were coming through childhood and coming to a place where you allowed more of your humanity into your life in the way that it seems you do now. Do you mean professionally or do you mean all of it? I mean, all of it. I I am of course interested in professionally, but you know, this kind of process of how we put down who we think we're expected to be and start in incremental ways, giving ourselves permission to be who we actually are. Yeah. Not to put too fine a point. Yeah. <laughs> Big question. Yes. But I think you're the right person to ask. Yeah, that's I, I have to say, like at the outset, I was really, I don't know what the right word is. Lucky's not the right word. I don't bless feels not like the right word either. But my my parents were always supportive of my brothers and I have two brothers sort of becoming whoever we were. So they didn't expect us to have certain careers. You know, I have one brother who's a visual artist in Los Angeles and lives like a very glamorous life that is not mine. My other brother was in the military and is a businessman. I mean, we're very different from one another. And they always supported that in us. So I was never, I never had that, which many people listening might have, that like fight to, um, I never had to fight to, explore what I wanted to explore. So I just want to name that at the outset because that's perhaps unique and not everyone gets that. Um, So I feel really grateful for that. Now, you know, when I was little, I was always listening at the adult conversations. I always wanted to understand the emotions that were being flung around (laughs) between adults. You know, and I didn't really, I, I could feel them and I was deeply curious about that. I was listening at doors. I was reading faces and I, I wanted in to the adult's world of emotions when I was tiny, like three. And, and I always loved words and stories. I never, ever thought that writer was something that I could be. I didn't know any writers. My family didn't know any writers. So that wasn't, I mean, I, you know, as you do as children, I wrote little books and imagined that and I 
imagined myself as an author, but didn't think that was a real possibility. And one thing that my parents encouraged me to do was to um, cast widely, you know, and just see, see what, where I could be useful and where I enjoyed being useful. And, and I was the oldest. So I just sort of, I just, I was off, you know, I didn't live with my family. They moved my last year of high school. I stayed in my town. And then from there, I just did my own thing. And I really wanted to be, one thing I was clear about was that I was not going to take the quote normal path. Not that there is a normal path, but I didn't want to do what was expected of me in society. And I didn't want to, um, I wanted to do, I wanted to be with people, with actual people, not on a computer and learning things that were out of my comfort zone. So that's what I did. I did that for, you know, 10 or so years. I had many different jobs and I was always writing when I had those jobs. And so I, I chose this and, and sort of hoped very naively, you know, that maybe this will work and maybe I can make money doing this. I had other jobs at the same time to support that until I could. But I don't, just to be clear, I don't make money writing books. I make money teaching. So that's an important thing to clarify. So important. Yeah. You know, I, for anyone out there, I mean, not that you can't make money, you make some money writing books, but as like a steady stream of income, that's, you know, unless you're Stephen King, that's usually unlikely. So even as I say that, I'm taking that back. So I'm like, I don't even know what's possible. Maybe it's possible. So who knows? I want to stay open to that for everyone. But so, and then I just started running groups and, you know, my first group, no one signed up for, and I cried a lot. And then I, you know, and then people started signing up and we're, and it just sort of evolved from that. And it feels very much like I'm in my alignment with, you know, I was talking to a best friend of mine the other day and she said, how did, you know, how did you put, you've always loved the body. You've always loved people's emotions. You've always loved writing. Like, how did you, this all come together? And I don't know. It just was a path, a lot of it, trusting impulse and a lot of it having opportunities that, you know, where I landed in New York and a friend that I had studied abroad in South Africa with was a writer and she was my age. And she said, come join my writer's group. And then we were all 25 and everyone was taking themselves really seriously. And really because of her and because of that group, I took myself seriously. You know, Mm -hmm. that was, I mean, I tell her all the time. I mean, that was, she was integral and me thinking that this was something I could do. Mm-hmm. And we we have we all, I think many of us, most of us have these little, these not these little, these people in our lives who just show up at certain times and there's a bigger piece at work there that we may not even know at the time, you know? Absolutely. So I'm curious um, now with that framework in mind, thinking about how you show up for everything you show up for, you know, personally and professionally from a place of really honoring your body, honoring your needs, divesting from grind culture in whatever way you can, like, how does it work? I often get a lot of emails from parents who say kind of like, okay, but not me. Mm, Yeah. You know, and I think we all really struggle with divesting from grind culture. So it's not parent specific, but there's so much busyness in parenting that I think sometimes it makes it feel like it's the exception because I don't know, you are by nature getting less sleep or feeding lots of people, you know, feeding yourself first is such a beautiful 
example of that, I think. Uh, but I'm curious about what else, like, how do you make it work? Yeah. Well, what the first piece is for me is to sit with the truth that there will be consequences, you know, which is, you know, I'm 43. So I think my generation, at least of middle to upper class American women, generally, I'm generalizing, was told like, you can be all the things. Of course you can, you know? And I think on some level, that's true. However, when we unplug or divest from grind culture, there will be consequences. There have to be consequences because you can't, well, a very personal example in May, I had a health crisis where I ended up getting an emergency blood transfusion. I lost so much blood. I didn't know. I mean, I knew, but I didn't realize the degree of it. And I had to stop a lot of things um, in order to build myself back up from severe blood loss. And I had to cancel a class. I had to cancel. I had, I lost a lot of money. I'm sure I lost people on my list, you know, who knows? And that was a consequence I had to take in order to stay alive. And when that became clear to me, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. I don't care if no one ever signs up for a class again. I have to stay on this planet for myself and for my kids. And that just, that was so crystallized for me. And it allowed me, and I took a lot of space. And the consequence was financial. The consequence was, you know, I lost a lot of what I'd built professionally. But what I gained was profound. I, I can't even language it right now because I'm I'm just at the place where I can reflect back. It's been seven or eight months where I can reflect back and, and start to feel what I've gained. But it, it was profound, like a whole new foundation for my life. And so for me, it's a balance of consequences. And, you know, with, with young kids, that shit's real. Like, yes, there's the systems have created an impossible situation, right? With um, one person trying to do all these things and it, it doesn't, it's never made sense. And so in that case, I did not, I was not at that point when my kids were really little, I was not willing to allow the consequences And so what happened is I just got a different kind of consequence. (laughs) So it's like I was working till two in the morning every night because I was, you know, with my little ones on some days when I didn't have childcare. And then I ended up completely ravaging my own hormones, which led to a lot of health issues and mental health issues. Mm. But I wasn't willing to let go of the other pieces. So would I have done anything differently? I don't know. Like my honest truth is, I don't know. I was so committed to my creative practice and to my writing and building my work. I don't know if I, I don't know if I would have done anything differently. And that's the honest truth. And so it's like, but now I'm in a different place. And so, you know, how people say when you have little kids, just, you know, hang on, you know, when they're five, everything will shift. Try not to get divorced because if you're partnered, because <laughs> it will shift. You know, I, I heard that a lot from people and, and, Part of that feels true to me. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really have like a, a a great and inspiring answer for that other than I can we bear the some consequences? Mm-hmm. Are are we okay with that? And are we okay supporting each other in that and even celebrating that for each other and saying, yeah, 
you had to let go of X so that you could be Y and, or Z or A or B, whatever it is. And yeah. Yeah. For me, it's so much about getting right, like getting aligned inside of myself because though there are for sure, I mean, I am, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, so I you're in it doing lots of things, you know, and my, we were caring for a good friend of ours who was terminally ill over the course of this last year. So I did a lot of that parenting by myself. And for me, though there are, of course, you know, having to have say no to so many things in order to kind of honor that commitment, both first to care for our friend and second to obviously care for our our children and do that in a the way that I want to do it versus just phoning it in, which is always available just right there. What I notice is like, yeah, there's absolutely have been for me over the course of this last year, professional consequences, financial consequences. But what cuts the most as I'm sitting here thinking about it is really my internal experience at the gap between my ambition and the reality of my life. Mm. And like the frustration, which is quick to rage. Yes. Of just like wanting so many different things at the same time. Yeah. Because it's not like I don't want to be here with my kids. And it's not like I don't want to, you know, I've said yes to everything very consciously. But what is lost is getting to like frolic around in my rich inner world, my, <laughs> you know, and create things out of that, which I really fucking love too. Yes. And do it in a certain way. And as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about how the most pain that I experience is really at that, like that gap yes, between what's possible and what I want and how, you know, for me, kind of the only way to get through that or to be with that is to like really reorganize it again and again, and just say like, okay, you know, these are my commitments and it won't always be this way, but this is how it is right now. And I am good with those commitments. Yes. And I'm willing to feel all of the ways that I'm feeling right now in order to honor them. And, you know, kind of coming back to that, like, it doesn't, doesn't mean it's, you're doing it wrong if you're uncomfortable. It's like yeah. like taking it a bit further. It's like, even if you are filled with rage <laughs> about that gap, you still doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And it doesn't mean you would choose to do it any other way. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if there's a, like to zoom, zoom out, way out. And see, I love working with cycles and seasons. And for me, it's helpful to know that even in the in the moments when I'm not, quote, producing anything creative or even actively in my making space, that there is still something happening. Like there is the, the fallow period, mm-hmm. which honestly, the early childhood years as a parent, there's so much happening in the home. But for work, especially, you know, for especially creative work, it it feel it can feel like a fallow period because there is the actual reality of lack of time and all of that. And but if I can trust that, and there are fallow periods within days too, right? It's like within a day, there's a fallow and a productive period and all of that. You know, it's it scales in all the different directions. But to to look back and go, okay, that was a season where there was a fallow period. But in the fallow period, it's not that nothing is happening, it's that everything 
is getting ready to emerge. And it is that everything is percolating and the seeds are underground and they are ready. They're just waiting for the sun and the, you know, and the rain and all the things to come to help them grow, but they're ready. They're potentiated. And that to me feels exciting because it feels like, oh, something is happening. There's so much underneath and in the subterranean and it is preparing itself for when the, the conditions are ready for this. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't find moments and pockets in which to explore that. But as a as a general tone, that helps me a lot. I don't, you know, people often ask me about writing practice. And I say in my first book, when I had, did not have children, I wrote three hours a day, every day for a year, the end. <laughs> my second book, I wrote in fits and, when I had a little one, I wrote in fits and starts. I had to go away for 12 days and leave her with her dad and write my first draft. And then, I mean, just literally for like 15 hours a day, boom, writing and full first draft. And then when I came home, you know, I edited that multiple, multiple times in fits and starts all over the place because that those were the conditions of my life then. So I think there's a lot for us. There's There are a lot of answers for us in cyclical living. And we have been fed or shown a very static way of engaging with creative practice, you know, especially in in modern culture, which involves like time, like, you know, do this every day at this time, da, da, da. And some that works for some people, but it isn't the only way, you know? And anyway, that I think there's, for me, there's just a settling and knowing, okay, this is this too shall pass, and this and this too is fruitful. Just because I'm not bearing fruit every minute of the day doesn't mean I'm not creating. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really, I mean, it's personally wonderful to hear myself. But I think that there are a lot of people who will be listening that that will be really inspiring for as well. I'm curious for. I know I only have you for a few more minutes. This has been so great but I have two more questions I have to ask you. And the first is about your favorite body-based writing exercises. You talked a little bit about what your writing practice looks like now. And I'm personally curious how you bring your body along for the ride. Yes. On on the very most simple piece is just tracking my own nervous system, my own body as I'm writing, before I write, as I write, after I write. So looking for not so much emotion, it will be there, but tracking sensations because sensations precede emotion. So the way I know that I'm sad is that I feel constriction in my throat. That's a sensation, right? That leads me to call it sad. The way I I know that I feel anger is my esophagus starts being squeezed, like from the bottom and moving upwards. And that's when I know, uh uh-oh, okay, here we go. This is about, I'm about to explode. So I track my sensations before I give, you know, give myself a prompt. Notice how is my body responding to this prompt before I go right into thought? Ooh, I feel I'm leaning toward it or I'm leaning away from it. You know, that's some posturing. There's some posturing pieces there. And then afterwards as well and during, and it's, it's, it takes some practice to get into that space because we're not, we're not used to that. We're not used to being with our bodies while we're also with our thoughts and the other piece is reading something aloud 
and also not only to myself, but to another person. So all of those are different iterations of, you know, you can write something and you're going to have one experience with it. You can read it out loud to yourself and you're going to have another experience of it because it moving up and out through your vocal cords is going to elicit something in your body. Oftentimes people will read out loud in my workshops and they'll go, I, I don't know why I'm crying. Like I didn't, I didn't even feel that when I was writing it, you know, but something about voicing it and being seen brings more of that sensation, more of the emotion up. And then reading it to someone else, a trusted person creates a whole other layer of complexity, right? Which, which actually gives us information about ourselves and what we feel okay speaking, what words have weight, what words don't have weight. So those, that's a very simple piece around bringing the body along. The other piece is delighting in our own language. So I'm often asking people like, how do you language this? What are the words you use? What are the words that you use that are tired that you don't want to use anymore? You hear yourself saying them and you feel physically tired. You know, that's an important cue right there. Okay. So then, wow, I think, I think I want some different language around this. So, and and just delighting in your own rhythm and pacing and all of that, because it's, you know, I love a run on sentence. I love a run on sentence written, especially. I just love how it tumbles on top of, on top of itself. I love it paired with a really short punchy sentence. So for me, I just, I love that variety. Some people really like something that's more monotone, you know, and what is that for you? That's bringing the mammal into it. Like, what do you like? What is your preference? And your body will let you know that. You know, if if I asked you to write in really short staccato sentences, how is your body going to respond to that? Does that excite you? Do you feel, do you get an uplift in your spine? And do you feel like, yes, let's do this? Or do you feel, you know, sort of deflated, right? So constantly tracking our own impulse and our own response. And then the other one that I love that has given me so much traction in my life. So I love to pass it on to people. It comes from, it's my adaptation of something that comes from somatic experiencing in which they say it's really important to create new neural pathways to notice the small changes that are happening and to actually notice that you're noticing, right? So you have an argument with your partner, but you do it a little differently and you say to each other, wow, we did that differently. Let's notice that we did that differently this time, that kind of thing. And the noticing of the noticing is essential. And so in my own writing, when I am writing about, when I'm trying to work something through, like sort of in a journaling type of way, I will begin with or end with, but often begin with tracking a 10% shift in something in my life and tracking it through senses and scene. So scenic and sensory, you know, from a professional writing perspective, as anyone knows who writes, like those are essential to write with senses and with scene. It brings us into our animal cells. People can feel it more, but for ourselves, just as lay people writers, if I can recall and reimagine the moment when I did something differently and it was a tiny micro shift and I can really flesh it out on the page and like almost make it a movie that's, you know, that's coming top down because I'm choosing to do that with my thoughts, but the effect is bottom up, which means it's, it's in your nervous system as you read it and remember it, which is I did that. And you're letting your nervous system know I can do that again. I have a picture of that 
in my mind, in my heart, in my, in my nervous system. So now I've laid down a new track and it's super rich in detail. And so here we go. I can, I can do that again. So you don't even have to do this with writing on paper. You can do this through your own embodied imagination when you fall asleep at night. I do that. I go, I run through my day and remember in vivid imagination and in my sensation, a moment where I did something differently in in a way that I choose, right? In in a way that I desire. I love that idea. I'm going to start doing that immediately. Yes, yes. I... (laughs) As you were talking, I was realizing that I kind of do a form of it just abstractly, naturally, but to really create a practice of it. Yes. I love and, that. And, and I mean, what, one addition to that is it, it's infectious in a good way. You can tell your friends and you can say, you can, you know, call a friend and say, hey, here's my 10%. Let mm-hmm. me share it with you. You know, share what, what's your 10%. And then it becomes a culture. You sort of create a culture around it with your people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I can also, while we're talking about it, simultaneously feel this little shame place that's like nobody gives a shit about your ten percent. Which, of course, you know, <laughs> it's like exactly the part of you that needs such a thing. And yeah, just like how healing it is to give yourself permission to share. Yes. Oh my goodness, Molly. Well, thank you so much. This has been just delightful and just really, really, really wonderful. Where can people find you? What are you up to? Where do you like to hang out? Yeah. Where do I hang out? So I, my website, you know, is mollycarolmay.com. And I, I hang out a lot actually in my membership, the loam, where we actually have a 10% practice um, every Tuesday. And it's amazing to see people supporting each other in that. So, so that, that shame layer is real. And I think people move past it beautiful way. So there's, there's that place. I'm there all the time. I run a workshop called story mammal, which is about your nervous system and your story. I do that twice a year. I have probably two, maybe three in person retreats coming up next year, 2023. Um, So all of that is on my website. I am not on social media for all the reasons that you might extrapolate from what we discussed. I, my body told me so put it that way. My body let me know that was not working out for me. So you can find me on my website. And I also have a newsletter that I put out two times a month. You can sign up for that on my website. And that's um, it's a really playful place. And it is my whole intention with that is to not flood people's inboxes, right? But to create a pace that feels like I would want to receive. Well, we'll link up to absolutely everything in the show notes. And um, thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you shared with us today. Thank you, Mara. It was a, it's wonderful to be with you. And, and I could keep conversing with you for many, many hours. So I appreciate your insight and questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Nini podcast with Mara Glatzel. If you want my support in learning how to nourish your needs, dance on over to the NiniPodcast.com to take my quiz to figure out what you need right now and how to meet those needs with a greater sense of ease and confidence. If you love today's show, please leave us a review on iTunes and consider joining the Needy Inner Circle, where your monthly contribution enables us to continue bringing you the delicious conversations you adore without advertisement or interruption. 
to become a member of the Needy Inner Circle and gain access to the inspiring behind-the-scenes treats we've whipped up for you, skip to the needypodcast.com. And as always, permission loves company. So if there's a human in your life that you think would benefit from this conversation, I would be so grateful if you would share it with them. Thank you.